0: Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. I'm very pleased today that we have Stephen Kelly here. Stephen is the CEO of Sage. Um, He's here in Bath because he's receiving an honorary doctorate tomorrow. uh, in the um, ceremonies in the town, but he's also uh, an, an alumni of the university, or alumnus of the university, I should say. Um, and so it's, it's great for you. We've got as you come down, we've sort of nabbed a bit of your time to come and talk to us. And in particular, although uh, he's chief executive of Sage, and I could tell you a lot about you know, his career in US and UK companies, digital tech companies, and um, very, very important business careers. Had we're here really to hear about his time as the chief operating officer in the Cabinet Office for Her Majesty's Government. So this was from 2012 through to, um, up to, close to the last election. Um, And we want to really hear about, um, and this is why it's an IPR seminar with the Institute for Policy Research, we want to hear about how the kind of centre of government was changed in that period, what sort of things took place to respond in part to a changing external environment, to respond in part to a government that was saying, look, we're cutting a lot of spending, the spending's got to kind of come out of departments all over the place, Uh, the rise of digital technologies and what they were doing to government and we want to hear then what that really means when you're at the centre of government. What does it mean when you're at the centre of Whitehall? And of course these things, you know, the civil service now faces an absolutely gargantuan task uh, of working out how Britain, well, the terms of Brexit but also what it will mean for all sorts of things, trade, the laws of of the land, all sorts of things. And so the capabilities the performance and the accountability of the civil service becomes incredibly important because they now face an historic task, a, a very, very big one. So, Stephen, it's great to have you here. Thanks for coming and giving you a talk. Stephen's going to talk to you, and then I hope there'll be an opportunity for some questions. But it's, it's a relatively fast turnaround one today, so we'll be finishing at about 6 o'clock, but we'll try and sneak some time in for some Q&A.
1: Welcome, Stephen. Definitely. Excellent. Thank you very much. Let's do a time check. Good, good, good. I'll also, um, in the spirit of that, try and talk for maybe only about 15, 20 minutes and then open out up for questions. So uh, I was quite interested in listening
2: to you there, Nick. It's fascinating. We
1: live in historic times. Uh, when I sat in government, uh, whether it was in the Treasury Building uh, or just next to Number 10, it was a, a time where we felt we were at the ringside seat of history. And my colleagues that I've left behind in government are certainly feeling that today. So... In some respects, we were in uncharted waters. And uh, a couple of things I want to leave you with, I'll talk for 15 minutes, but there's a a few parallels. Because obviously, how do you rewire a civil service that was over 400,000 people with a history of 200 years uh, in a short period of time? Uh, And in essence, there's a couple of things that absolutely transcend the private sector as well. So previous to that, I was a Nasdaq CEO, I was a FTSE CEO. Um, been in very high-growth companies out in California, came back to Britain, which is uh, lucky to have an education in Bath. And uh, there's a lot of lessons learned that absolutely drive into the public sector equally into the private sector as well. And I think there was this um, stereotype that there's a kind of massive chasm between private sector experience and public sector experience, and that's a myth, quite frankly. Uh, Because at the end of the day, everything we do, and particularly in the civil service you got the brightest and the best people. Uh, you got incredibly committed people. And what our mission was is to connect them with the key aspect of delivering for stakeholders, whether that's citizens, taxpayers, um, ministers, but ultimately providing better services to the public of Britain. Now, just a caveat, I didn't look after the National Health Service, I didn't look after education, and I didn't look after local government. But everything else in terms of central government and what that was, £140 billion of spend a year. Um, and 40 pound, 43 billion pounds on goods and services, uh, a lot of headcount, and then a lot of spend on IT on major projects. And when I walked in there, obviously we'd have the car crashes of the past that were well documented by the Public Accounts Committee, things like Connected for Health, an absolute disaster of a project, uh, which kind of typified a lot of the reasons why things historically have gone wrong in government an abdication of accountability, uh, where there was a whole culture where if there's a business problem, typically fantastic civil servants would go for a risk mitigation strategy, pick up the phone to any of the big four consultancies and get armies of consultants in. And in that situation, we had you know, armies of Deloitte's people, managing IBM, managing Accenture, and there was one massive meeting I went towards the end and there wasn't a civil service in the room. And I was just thinking, wow, who's paying for this meeting? Who's paying for your time? Taxpayer. And yet there's, no, there's not the customer even in the room. So, so there was a period and a history, particularly as the times got good and the economy was booming back to post-TRM through to 2007, where sadly the more money actually created a less efficient civil service. Productivity went down for 10 years. And public services actually materially didn't improve relative to the investment that was going in. So there's kind of three things I, I, I do want to emphasise with you. One is what we clearly had, uh, legitimacy, and this is absolutely public sector, private sector. We had a burning platform. And uh, what, as a leader, when you want to rewire an organisation, is pretty fundamental you either need a burning platform, like a profit one in the private sector, or an organisation uh, that is basically... Uh, significantly overmanned, uh, falling productivity, and yet kind of post-credit crunch, a new reality, where the government borrowing was shooting through £100 billion a year. Uh, the debt mountain for Britain was over a trillion pounds. And there was kind of... George Osborne at the time was making uh, protestations about being in surplus or a balanced budget by 2015, right at the beginning. If we remember, and still this year, we're going to be ticking away at £70 billion of additional debt being added to the debt mountain of well over a trillion. So, in essence, there was clearly a burning platform, um, and that was pretty fundamental to what we're seeking to to actually address. Secondly, uh, which was really fundamental, is is the sense of purpose you need to connect the people in the organisation, the colleagues, the civil servants. So, um, up to this point, you had 24 departments, you had HMRC, you had MOJ, Ministry of Justice, you had Home Office, and everybody was proud to act independently. But everybody bought the same paper. Everybody had different cleaners but had to do the same job of cleaning. Everybody had IT. Everybody bought technologies like this. But they all bought them through different suppliers. So we had literally hundreds of thousands of different suppliers providing the same stuff. And there was massive duplication, massive waste. Uh, and, and it was an antipathy to the organisation to have any control coordination alignment and that just didn't make sense but how we kind of reconnected everybody was through the burning platform and then secondly back to the sense of purpose of the mission that we were on Uh, and there was a couple of things we did around that and uh, I'll bring those to life one of the things we did is actually the obvious thing is when you're 21 years old you come down from Cambridge or Oxford and you come into the civil service reconnect yourself to the passion and the energy around public services that you wanted to deliver for Britain then because the institution has actually detuned a lot of that passion out of you. Then secondly, the other thing that's really important is correlate everything we did in terms of what does that mean for protecting the health service or what does it mean for protecting primary school places. So I'll share with you in terms of um, some of the data in terms of the savings, our direct correlations where we said, well, that's another 50,000 nurses' salaries we've saved for a year. So we're protecting the health service. So it's back to the sense of purpose. Everybody's passionate about the health service. Everybody's passionate about great British public services. And when, as a leader, you reconnect the correlation of what you're doing in the everyday life to great civil servants to actually saving money and protecting the health service it matters it means something so there's a real sense of purpose and we used to use phrases like you know truly this is a noble cause we did used to use phrases like you're sitting at the ringside seat of history we um, we actually got people like me from the private sector and we got about a few hundred people like me we recruited an awesome team uh, and up to the next election we probably had the best team in the UK of any company around commercial skills digital skills uh, running major projects efficiently uh, and we just pulled, not only from the UK, the best people around the world. Because, again, there was a great sense for people like me in my 50s of having the opportunities to do public service and give back to the UK, having taken out of the UK through the education system for years and years and the health system. Uh, and we actually put teams together of um, civil service, great private sector people who came on command and actually got the job done and executed. And then the other fundamental thing, and it was a game-changer, uh, I would, you know, and it's a privilege. I blogged on this on the weekend. It was a real privilege serving in the coalition government. Obviously, I was a civil servant. I was impartial. But the way the Liberal Democrats and the Conservatives worked together, you couldn't, you couldn't put a piece of paper between them. You wouldn't know which party ministers came from, because everybody was clearly aligned around what the mission is, and the mission is better public services, save money for the taxpayer and really get job done to to attack the deficit. Um, And and it was a a privilege I worked with, particularly ministers, obviously, in the Treasury, George Osborne, but especially with Danny Alexander, who was fantastic. Um, uh, Francis Maud was the architect of everything I'm talking about tonight. Uh, But all around uh, Whitehall, there was just a massive momentum, whether it was Michael Fallon, uh, uh, Philip Hammond, Theresa May. There was just incredible alignment... Both politically and with a civil service and you know it's like I used to think of it as Francis as my non-executive chairman you know I'm effectively the executive uh, accountable for execution of the strategy and we spent a lot of time in those early days mapping out how do we get this done how do we actually attack the waste how do we make savings because because we also knew particularly because they brought people in like me we had to defy the cynics Honestly, a lot of the civil servants would think that we brought in all these good and the great from the private sector, and typically every one of them has failed. So the only way you have to do that is kind of show me the money. You have to prove to them with some early wins about momentum, and once you get that momentum, you know, it's like your success is contagious, it's infectious, and also the stench of failure, you know, everybody wants to leave the room. So um, back in May 2010, uh, there was a group of us that worked prior to the election on the 100-day plan, and that had key themes around the digital strategy, the major project strategy to stop the crazy things like connecting for health and projects out of control, uh, and then all the commercial skills. And one of the things we did, uh, which France has implemented and uh, I wrote the paper for, was um, a short, sharp shock in terms of rebalancing the supplier-customer relationship with government and its major suppliers. And just to give you a feel, in May 2010, when the government walked in, they said, who are our major suppliers? Where do we spend this £40 billion a year? And no one had a clue. Even when we went around the twenty forty pilots, no one had a clue. There was no data. Just no data. And then, you know, I could give you loads of cameo stories about, so how much do we spend with whoever it is, Circo, Hewlett-Packard, IBM, any of these companies? And we'd ask the department one day, they'd give us a the number, then we'd go and ask the supplier, they'd give us a number. One, one day, it was a £400 million pound a year, the supplier said £700 million pound a year. And then you just put teams in there of really good analysts, um, and you actually get to the truth, which in that case was £1.4 billion pound a year. <laughs> so wow just the level of discipline and then just changing the culture and i'll talk um I'll use some slides to talk some of the culture because it transcends to sage as well uh and it just makes the point that whatever we did there totally works in the private sector but we used to use phrases like you know where's the taxpayer in the room treat the government's money as if it's your own because it is you're paying taxes you know just have that level of discipline uh and that anxiety every time you know where's the citizen in the room because if the citizen's not there. And, and with the digital services we run out, totally changed the um, emphasis from just thinking about government to thinking about the user. What, what user experience do we want to create? How do we get better services out there? So um, back in those days, good news was, from that programme where we got the suppliers in, there was kind of 90-day short shop, chop treatment from May through to August, and we got money back cash from the top 40 suppliers of £800 million. Pound. And that was a seminal moment for the government to realise, wow... This is real. And actually, surprise, surprise, you know this. If you've got suppliers who have been very comfortable for a long period of time and there's been no customer pressure or no customer management, and then all of a sudden a bit of a shock treatment, people like me turn up on the other side of the table who have been on the other side for the last 30 years and actually say, we want a better deal for the taxpayer. We want these service deliveries that you failed to deliver. Service levels went up, shot through the roof, and we banked £800 million in three months. So that led and really um, actually accelerated a lot of the elements um, in terms of the success of the program that led to the aggregate savings. So let's um, just whiz through a couple of things in terms of uh, yeah, use of technology. So um, one of the other things we used, to, to Nick's point, is what changed. So we all know the digital revolution. This didn't exist before 2007. Yeah, two billion of on, on them on the planet now. You guys want to interact with government through this sort of stuff. You don't want to have to do paper. Um, and with, with all these things, there's some bumps in the road. But the reality is the world has changed dramatically. The users of government want to deal with, with government as if they were dealing with the best consumer companies. So one of the things we said right on on the digital experience, we want to give digital services that are better than any other company in the world, better than Amazon, whoever it is. Um, And, you know, the shift in terms of... This has obviously been accelerated since then because things like 90% of the world's data has been created in the last 12 months. 18 months of photographs that all of our kids and we take for Instagram and all these sort of things. There's more photos taken in the last 18 months than the history of photography, going back to something like 1826 when the first Kentucky horse was actually photographed in black and white. Yeah. So the pace of change... um, really gave us a second burning platform saying it's just not good enough to go back to the old ways and i remember going on dvla and there was a time when we were sending 30 articulated trucks full of paper down to swansea on the m4 every day and that just doesn't make sense in 2012 2013 2016. So that was the trigger point to actually getting rid of the car disks and tax disks and joining up with the insurance companies so it completely creates an end-to-end process and looks at the user experience and renewing the tax disks as a use case and allows it all to be user-driven. So that was a pretty significant factor in terms of improving the service. Now, the UK challenge at the time is as follows. So what we sought to do, and this is where it's kind of interesting, when you rewire stuff, um, because you have to destroy the myths of 70 years. So the 70-year rhetoric I'd heard, probably all of us who are over 30, 40, heard for every politician, whether it's the Conservatives or Labour, is more public spending equals better public services. More public money equals better public service. Throw more money at the health service, you'll get better outcomes. Actually, it doesn't work like that. We were finding more public money grew inefficiencies and declining productivity and worse outputs. So what we sought to do is completely reprogram. We said, can we get better public services, and this is the exam question we have to solve, for less money? Less inputs, better outputs, and put the citizens at the heart of those outputs. But can we do it in a way where we drive growth for the British economy. So it was almost unheard of. It was, and, and people in the first, well, six months just couldn't get their heads around this. It was almost like we were talking a foreign language. To the, some of the civil servants who had been in the great departments, really passionate, really committed individuals for 30 years, to say, actually, we're going to spend less money, we're going to have better outcomes for citizens, we're better public services, and we're going to drive growth for Britain. And how we did that, you know, this is kind of fast forward into 2015. Uh, the big kind of factor was um, 20 billion of savings based on the baseline of 2010. So over that period, 2010, we reduced government spending into central government by 20 billion pound a year. Now, why did that matter? Back to the kind of genesis of the noble cause and the sense of purpose. That correlates to a million junior nurses salary every year. Yeah, I think it's about 10 million primary school places. So it matters. We all care about school. We all care about education. We all care about health and the National Health Service. So actually, by taking 20 billion out, it frees up um, the chance that I have other choices around critical public services to Britain. And we had incredible integration and alignment across departments. So we worked from MOD, justice, on key initiatives right across, whether it's digital, whether it's major projects, whether it's commercial skills, and we really upskilled the capability in the civil service, which is critical. So we didn't, and we used to use phrases like, we don't want to you know, give millions of pounds to consultants to come in and read our watches and tell us the answer and tell us the time. Yeah, those days are over. So, uh, but, but it shifts the accountability, because we can't sit in front of the public accounts committee and say, actually, I bought... Accenture or Deloitte's or PwC in and therefore, you know, I was a good civil servant and I did everything right and I handed them the problem. No. Civil servants are accountable to the ministers and the government today for delivering value to the public service and save the taxpayers money and deliver the agenda for the government today. So massive shift. And then uh, around the reform programme, you know, you're users of things like GovUK, you're users of, of DVLA, you probably do some of your um, tax returns digitally. All that stuff accelerated um, uh, at the speed of light relative to what it was before. And when I landed there, first of all, um, there was one supplier in one department that used to charge that department to change their website for one word, £30,000. £30,000. And the civil servants argued with us that they thought that was good value. So we put some 22-year-olds that were doing it in minutes civil servants trained from government digital services. And that's why, you know, things like Gover UK won awards. It beat the um, Shard in terms of um, design awards. It beat the Olympics back in 2012. So it was a great way to recruit the best in the industry, amazing uh, millennials who had awesome digital skills and then really reconnect themselves. But it also, in terms of how rewiring things, it totally changed the culture of the organisation. So we used to stand up and say, the whole culture here must be put ourselves in the user first, but also to fail fast, learn quickly, cause correct. What we don't want to do is what we've done for the last 20 years, where everybody knows there's an elephant in the room, and the project's not going to deliver, and everybody hides, until it all blows up five years later, and we've spent another $10 billion, or whatever, £10 billion. Yeah. So it was a shifting culture where, actually, if things weren't going well, then we encouraged our colleagues in the civil service to put their hand up and say, no, this isn't. And so we changed the culture around how we built projects. It was like two-week cycles, sprints and then a retrospective, what's going well, what's not going well, what do we need to change? Uh, And it was a, a much better culture. And one of the things around the culture, which I'd say we'll come on to this in a second in the civil service, there's many great things to admire, but it wasn't the case, there was the candour and the honesty when things weren't going well. People tend to hide, and then it's great. You know, it's like, and I, I, don't, I, I don't want to in any way be disparaging to teachers, but there's no bad teachers because they all get moved on from school to school with great references. We've all done it. Come on, let's be honest, yeah? It is the case, if you've got a problem employee who's not a high performer, you're happy to move them on to someone else? And you just think about that when you've got 400,000 people, it's easy to hide. And the spotlight of performance was never there. And there was never the honesty of conversations around performance reviews. Mind you, the performance review process was an industry in itself. But it came out with no decent outcomes and no honest conversations. So um, a big shift in terms of the culture, and it's all about culture. It's about two things, really, leadership and culture, really clear. Uh, but very different um, outcomes and really connecting us always to our stakeholders, ministers, taxpayers, citizens. And then growth. Incredible, actually. Um, I I wasn't sure that this was possible, but um, when we joined, it was back 2012, when I started some stuff off in 2010, and at that time, of the £40 on goods and services, about £2.6 billion a year was spent on small and medium businesses. And we said we wanted to have 6% of government expenditure and we said it was cameron who set a target of uh, with advice from francis Moore to move that over five years to 25 percent with small and medium businesses so um 2015 11 billion pounds we went from 2.6 billion a year in a shrinking envelope where the overall envelope shrunk significantly by about 27 percent um the investment from the uk government in goods and services from small and medium businesses went from 2.6 billion pound a year Uh, five years later, to £11 billion a year, from 6% to 25%. And when we did the analysis, surprise, surprise, the big companies, obviously, typically non-British, obviously overseas, but when you do the analysis, and obviously all very compliant with the EU um, legislation in terms of buying and um, procurement, but you do the analysis of all your top, small and medium businesses, 90% of them reside in Britain, employing British people, paying British taxes. So not only do you actually drive, and that's the big factor, and there's companies who have gone public, like Canos, who started with four people back there in 2011 and had 700 people working in government by the four years later. So these high-growth, small to medium businesses were a real growth uh, factor, and they came from Sheffield and Manchester and Leeds and all the areas, uh, as well as London, but all the areas in the north of England as well, around the digital agenda. Um, and the IT agenda that actually kind of transformed not only the savings and the outputs, but also drove uh, the British economy. Because again, if you don't know, there's two thirds of the jobs in Britain in the last five years have been created by small and medium businesses. Sixty-six percent of the what um, I can't remember—it's about two and a half million jobs—have been created by small and medium businesses. So it's not—you know—we all read about them in the papers, JP Morgan, and all these companies, particularly at the moment. But they're not the guys that create jobs in a normal economy anyway, it's the guys who are down the road in the science parks, the IT companies, the bakers, the florists and all these guys who actually build the British economy. So key thing was success was safe, safe for the taxpayer, deliver better outcomes for us as citizens and transform the whole connection point in terms of um, the DNA of the civil service. So um, in, with that respect, um, some of the values, i talked about that. These, these are sage values. So I think it really is important, that you, particularly for millennials, to connect yourself to values because it does allow you to have honest conversations around not only delivering awesome outcomes, but doing it the right way. So it's not only the what, but it's the how as well. When we set up this government digital services, we, we wanted to take the pillars of the civil service, which is, ironically, one of them is honesty. Um, integrity, honesty, objectivity, impartiality, and political impartiality, great values. Now, with any organisation, you probably work in companies, and you probably see the values, and then you think, wow, it's pretty different, actually, how people behave. So we did relentless comms around this is what we expect, these are the outcomes, but we want to showcase these poster children because they did it the right way. They live the values. And all these things about simpler, better services, better digital um, services in terms of design principles, agile, cause correct, fail, fail fast, um, and always start with the user needs. That was the essence of it all. So it's a pretty successful programme, and there's two things in terms of leadership and culture. And then I'll, I'll just um, show you what Margaret Hodge, this is a bit of, um, not in any way super but Margaret Hodge was the chair of the Public Accounts Committee. You probably know Meg Hillier's taken over from Margaret. So if I can get the technology to work in. Uh, when I stepped down at the end of um, the Parliament.
2: One, I one more, Mr. Kelly, when are you leaving? Well, actually,
1: <laughs> I am leaving November fifth to go back to the first okay.
2: I just wanted to say, really, on behalf of the committee, uh, uh, Stephen, you know, I, we think we've done great work, it's, it's, uh, and we're really, really sad. I think it is uh, not good for the civil service and for
1: government that you're leaving. Um, I'm going to get. So good on Margaret. She's, um, I, I always used to love, I was, uh, you know, again, crazy, mythology. People used to say you never want to go in front of the PAC. If you do, like, you need a week's preparation, an army, literally the amount of paper and preparation civil servants go through. They've read everything that could possibly ask. And I used to drive mad. I said, well, what do you want to talk about? What's the topic of the PAC? Well, let's just go on and have a conversation. Let's be honest. If we haven't got the documents, we'll commit to getting the documents to her, the data, whatever she wants. Because these guys, again, let's not kid ourselves, they represent you, represented Parliament, holding ministers and civil servants accountable. So what's not to like about that? So let's just go along and see what's on her mind. And, you know, if we've screwed up, let's say we've screwed up. We could have done it better. So how have we done it better? What's the lessons learned? How, how will we stop that car crash happening again? Yes, yeah, so, but it was a very, very different culture, um, and she was fantastic. And, and that, that system, actually, I think, uh, is very powerful. Let me just show, and uh, literally this takes two seconds, in terms of what I've done with Sage, because a lot of parallels, and this brings out the point: everything we talked about in the civil service of we rewiring is the same with Sage. So Sage, um, ironically, is probably Britain's best-kept secret. It's the largest technology company in the UK. um, And also 53% of all businesses in the UK pay their employees using Sage. So, you know, we probably... And they're all small and medium businesses. So um, these are the sort of factors. But actually, you know, it needed a bit of a shock. And one of the things we used to create the burning platform was we have data to say we're losing market share. So that was a galvanising rallying cry to say we've got to change. Uh, then the next thing is how do we create the sense of purpose? Who are we serving? Uh We've got data, loads of data, and you probably know this. Um, 70% of small and medium business owners have used their own money or borrowed from friends and family to fund their business. That's pretty noble. Um, half of them work weekends. You know, fifth of them work 70 hours a week. So these are guys who go out every day, five o'clock, six o'clock build their businesses, 40% of new business startups in the UK are female. So what's, again, kind of if, if we want to connect the whole of our 14,000 colleagues in SAGE with something that's a noble cause, if you're not working for Save the Children Fund or a charity, there's probably not many better places to, to go than work and serve small and medium business owners and entrepreneurs who are giving their lives to pursue their passion. Uh, and using their own funds and giving up their lives and making sacrifices by missing sports days, all those sort of things, to actually do what they do best and be their own boss. So um, that was the sense of the burning platform we created and also um, to make sure that uh, our people were very connected with who they are. And then uh, extending that one step further, because we believe in, uh, I do believe this is the model for all companies, it's not only building a hugely successful growth company, connecting colleagues with things that really matter for customers, but it's also doing it the right way. And we massively believe in giving back, making a difference to the communities we serve. And we're lucky we've got 2,000 of our people um, employed in Newcastle. So we're the largest private sector employer in Newcastle. And there's still bad unemployment, and there's lots of deprivation, and lots of vulnerable people, and kids who've got no opportunity. So things like 100 apprentices are coming this year into SAGE. Some of those apprentices are coming from third-generation unemployed families. So it's just, to, just literally... And when we stand up at all-hands meetings and you see some of these kids who are amazing, 17-, 18-year-olds, you really connect your colleagues to say, wow, this is a great place to work because we're not only building stuff which is awesome for entrepreneurs and great technology on this sort of smartphone device to run their business even more effectively, but also doing it the right way and giving back to communities. So we kicked off about two months after I started the Sage Foundation. And, you know, again, five days volunteering paid by Sage for every colleague in the world. You know, 2% of our free cash flows go into grant funding for all these um, awesome youth uh, charities and actually do a lot with people like the Prince's Trust. And then also we give um, two products free of charge to any uh, charity or any non-profit organisation. So again, it kind of really galvanises our people to say, we're really connected. Yeah, we've got the burning platform. We get that, Stephen. But actually, serving entrepreneurs, there's no better better group of people to serve. High integrity, just want to follow their dreams, be their own boss. And if we can make a massive difference to the communities we serve, particularly because they're pretty vulnerable communities like the northeast of England, uh, then it's fantastic. And in the northeast of England, you know, we've got 2,000 employees, five days a year, that's 10,000 days, what's that, 80,000 person hours every year going into either helping in the hospice or helping in... This, my CFO goes off to Cramlington to help disadvantaged kids. I go down to youth offenders. And so it's kind of a whole mantra that actually, again, you would argue rationally, how could you afford five days a year? for a company to give paid volunteering time off. The productivity we get from our colleagues shoots through the roof. So um, kind of enough said from me, but um, what we did in the public sector, in the civil service, uh, I think has carried on, which has been very successful. Uh, The key things, again, was establish the burning platform, the absolute compelling need to change, and then really connect with that noble cause, like who are we here to serve, and make it really simple for people to understand and correlate it directly to nurses, primary school kids, the education. And then the other final thing was the alignment between the executive and the non-executive and really holding the executive accountable. And then I haven't talked about this, but final comment I'll leave you with is the alignment between strategy and execution was awesome. So I'd always say, you know, A-class strategy with B-class execution is always going to be inferior to B-class strategy with A-class execution. So, the the word in civil service is called policy. So much policy is created and it never lands because it's totally unoperable. And and what you need is that connection between strategy or policy and execution, operationalizing, that really lands and makes a difference to the stakeholders you serve. So, thanks for listening. And uh, we've got loads of time for questions. About 12 minutes. Great.
0: Thanks very much indeed, Stephen. That was great. Um, So I've got some time for some questions. I'm going to start off, if I may, just get the thing going. So, um, you know, you run a big technology company, um, and you just at the end there referred to the sort of way in which some of us would have traditionally thought about policymaking, that you, you send away the civil servants to think about a policy challenge, they come back with advice for the minister, the minister decides the policy, announces the policy, and then there's a sort of delivery chain, and it gets done out there in the world. Uh, much of the way in which you described doing policy in the civil service in your time in the centre of government was things like agility, yeah. iteration, push out, fail quickly, come back, tw- you know, t- turnaround periods are much faster than that. Not so, so not policy through a chain to delivery over a long period of time, but much more iterative, rapid and agile, yeah. which feels and sounds much more like a kind of, the way a te- technologies work and develop and technology companies work and develop but it's also close to how people think increasingly about, in the academic literature, in fact, how people think about the way that governments work. And so I just... Is, is the, were you conscious in government of sort of being practising a different kind of way of doing policy like that to, the, to those more traditional
1: modes? Yeah, and uh, there's a, you, you picked up some of the key points. It was very clear policy and operationalising, when we turned up, were totally disconnected. And that's why, you know, you've heard it in the private sector about marketing, coming up with stupid campaigns and chucking them over the fence to customer services. And, you know, we all know that. But um, the reality is uh, the problem around the incentives around the civil service, i will argue, actually, candidly, having been... Uh, I'm out of debt. I hope it's changed. Nick. In the university system I turned up in 35 years ago, no-one wanted to teach me. They all locked themselves away in rooms and did research because that's the way you become a professor actually I want to be taught I'm a student I thought this you know so what was the reward system of the civil service it was policy 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 policy. operations was dirty 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 you don't want to do that and actually pretty risky because it can only go wrong you're not going to be a hero for delivering a system to the public and if it's an IT system it's really scary so um, the whole we had to unpick that, and the way we did it is respect policy, but we said we've got to connect it with operations. So it was pretty clear. We worked with the ministers around what is it you want to achieve, and we did a lot of this end-state plan, actually. Justin King, who's at uh, Sainsbury's, does exactly the same. The Reuters, guys, everybody does this kind of in the modern planet world. What is it you want to achieve? What's the policy outcome you want to deliver? And then let's test drive it. So on things like DVLA, HMRC, we set up citizens' groups. We actually said, what about if it looked like this? Let's, let's give you a prototype. Mm-hmm. If we could do this for you, what, what do you want to change on it? And, and then show it to the minister. And the minister's loved seeing actually how the visualization of the policy would land and be operationalized, particularly if it's systems, it's kind of very easy, but also on large projects. And with the large projects, you know, it's, it was um, the whole ethos there was, you know, kind of make it as complex as possible, boil the ocean, and hopefully it's going to last 20 years when well, I'll have moved on to 15 more promotions. No. What are the deliverables for the next six months? Well, the deliverables for the next six weeks. So we kind of skinned everything down and chunked it down into bite-sized chunks so it could be measurable, had milestones. And then, you know, we had set up with people like Sir Jeremy Hayward, key stock takes, and he's amazing, actually. He's the cabinet secretary, head of the civil service. He's an amazing, brilliant individual, and we should all be proud of him. Um, and he's very painted very differently in the press, candidly. But having worked with him directly, what he did was on some of these big initiatives, where it was around the savings agenda, spending review, we set up monthly stock takes and we got all the stakeholders in the room and we put the elephants on the table. Said, what's going well? What's not? You know, are we happy with this outcome? Could we accelerate it? Can we move quicker? And then brought the politics in the room. Is this going to be politically acceptable? So um, it was a very different way. But I I'd argue, you know, I kind of don't think in the digital ways there is any other way. Mm. Mm-hmm.
2: Great. Okay, let's um,
0: open it up to some questions
2: from the. Yeah, just my dear. Steve, uh, I'm one of your entrepreneurs. I'm managing director of, I suppose, a company that could say is in competition with Sage, but I don't think at a million turnover. We're the market's plenty big, big enough. Absolutely. Uh, and we're certainly very much uh, down the apprentice road of my 35 staff, six of them are, are, are apprentices at the moment, which is fantastic. You know, we've gone down that road. Um, But our experience of the civil service of late is that they've lost your way. Um, And classic on this one is the digital plan to have the four tax returns, call them what you will, um, for small business. And David Gort, the MP, seems to have got a bee in his bonnet, and everybody's following that bee slavishly rather than saying we're consulting but well, they're not consulting they go to go to public meetings and they say it's not up for discussion it's going to happen mm-hmm. um, and what, what's the specific aspect you don't like about it is it
1: um, the timeline is it because i think it, it, that's a 2020 it's it's
2: the concept it? that fred in his shed or yep. Bert in his van who is more interested in earning money is yeah. going to sit there with his iphone and keen in invoices, that somebody in the civil service is actually going to be able to understand yeah. and turn into cash flows. It's not going to happen. No. And unfortunately, everybody seems to have got within the civil service, seems to be saying, nope, it's going to happen, whether you like it or lump it. Um, and, you know, we're not even going to prepare to talk about it, which I find completely conflicting with what you just yeah. said.
1: Well, you know, honestly, I've, I've left 18 months. <laughs> uh, and we thought a lot of it, I know a lot of it has carried on because the guy I hired is now Chief Executive for the Civil Service, John Manzoni. Uh, and He's a good guy. Uh, and the guy who runs this programme you're talking about is Mark Durnley, who one of my guys, Mike Bracken, hired. Except that Mark has now thrown the towel in and he's leaving. Oh, is he? I didn't even know that. Uh, he was a good guy. Yeah. He was one of the good he's guys. Good. Um, and it's, you know, this is all about candidly leadership and you want some continuity around that i, I can if if mark's leaving i probably probably know less less of the people than you do now but i would say I, I thought we agreed when i left we're doing loads of consultation and exactly what i said is let's get that plumber in from streatham and let's get an electrician in and let's form these kind of uh, because it's different from different industries it might be People who are mobile, people who are working with shoeboxes of receipts never get around to invoicing their customers like plumbers and electricians um, and people with subcontracts and all that sort of stuff. So I, I said it's kind of not going to be one-size-fits-all. And, uh, you know, honestly, I'm, I'm not familiar with where that's gone to, but that, that would be the right way to do it. And the other thing, you know, back to this is... It's almost like you're kidding yourself. You could be an ostrich. We were. There's so many projects where there was ostriches everywhere. And we said, well, this project's clearly not going to deliver. And there was one project I inherited in 2012. I'll give you another example. Crazy. It had slipped, I think, 19 times. And I said, well, what are we trying to deliver? Let's re-baseline it. And that's it. And I said, well, let's re-baseline it. How long will that take? Right, six weeks. And then I stupidly, didn't I, I made loads of assumptions where I didn't actually forensically check what was happening. So I went back, like, I said, I'll do a, a stock take four weeks' time, check where are. And four weeks' time, I said, where are we on delivery? Because we still had a stream of work trying to deliver the project. They said, well, everybody's replanning. I said, well, who's delivering? No one. And literally, everybody had down tools and go on replanning. Planning's more fun. It's nice, let's scan charts around the walls and all that sort of stuff. Uh, But there was the whole culture where, you know, we all know this, you've probably been involved in initiatives and projects that never have a cat in hell's chance of landing. And it's almost like this inevitability of, well, let's kick the can down the road. It's like the Greek debt crisis. Kick the can down the road another five years, seven years, 2040. And it's like that, and see these projects. So I'd say if, if there's that feeling from users, which you are, then uh, I'll, I'll pick that up with the guys there and I'll talk to them, yeah, and see if we can kind of recalibrate and get a more sensible timeline or a more sensible phase in and actually kind of users engaged in the process so whatever they deliver. I think, you know, again, the policy intent is digitised taxation. Absolutely. Makes money, no, it's saves. Um, absolutely. So it's, it's the implementation of actually what does that look like for the communities we serve, which is, they use the word client, taxpayers. So we'll pick that up offline if you want to give me details, and I'll get someone to contact you. Yeah, I can't promise anything. If people like Durnley have gone, <laughs> you yeah, know, there might be a new order there. That's a shame. He's good.
0: Have we got any, any other questions? to? Yeah, lady at the back there, yeah.
2: Hi. So um, it sounded like you have operated in organisations where... Budgets are squeezed, mm-hmm. and I wondered how you how you identified areas for either cost savings or where efficiency could be improved.
1: In in the context, you know, we had a massive gorilla in the eight hundred pound gorilla in the civil service, and we looked at one hundred and forty billion pounds. So um, what we did there, and I'd probably advocate this, is is what I said is you've got to deliver some early wins. So we just looked at where we saw madness, and we said actually we'll attack that, and we can deliver something in 30 days. In parallel with that, we looked at the sort of Pareto law of where do we spend 80%, and what are the outcomes, and could we be a lot smarter in that? And then over the time there, we probably got to a, a population of 90, 95%. Um, and actually, one of the triggers was the spending review process and the budget and the autumn statement. Because we did do a lot more forensic. And, and the techniques we used were pretty similar, be candid, from when companies do acquisitions. So we almost got forensic accounting looking at the big kind of 80% of spend and where it goes and sort of looking at the value chain of are we actually getting the value on outcomes. Uh, but before I left, well, wow, there was a great meeting actually in um, Sir Jeremy Hayward's office where we were going, and again, cross Functional cross um, departmental team, but with the MOD guys looking at it, and it's just amazing. When you get into the details of uniforms, I can't remember the actual details, but how many uniforms do you think there are in the MOD? Uh, it was, I think, precise, I, I, it was over 10,000. And, you know, honestly, does it really matter if there's a different cut kind of cloth from another type? Because if we can actually save, so it was down to that level of detail. Uh, But we didn't start there. We went for the quick wins and then applied Pareto's law and did sort of some forensic accounting. And and honestly, you must know this in your own organisations, you always, over time, you just sort of get... You're not sloppy, but you just get complacent. Um, And also, through the application of digital technology, we were were buying stuff based on, like, 15-year-old prices, but we all know technology kind of collapses. So, um, but then then over time, you can start getting into the discipline and change the culture around treating the company's money, treating the government's money as if it's your own.
0: Who's so doing Where, where, where did do these civil servants come from? Were these, were these Treasury officials that you brought
1: in? Um, we, well, actually, the other thing I haven't touched on is the power of the relationship. Treasury are amazing, and what Sharon White and Nick McPherson, amazing people, and they're incredibly bright and very gifted. Um, but we had a very close relationship between cabinet office and they were the sort of what, what do we have to deliver and we were the how and that was, a, that was an incredibly powerful partnership because um, departments then would bring in and we would be very collaborative um, so where we brought the private sector people in um, we brought uh, two, two initiatives, again Francis Moore should take credit for both of them, one was the whole NED programme, um, non-executive director programme that was kicked off, and um, Lord Brown the former CEO of um, chairman of I think of BP kicked that off and he hired the who's who of boards and obviously when you ask people who are on the board of Aviva and actually Royal Bank of Scotland is probably a bad example Um, (laughs) so these good and the great companies whether they want to come and be on the board of MOJ or board of um, DWP we got some incredible board members so um, Jared Grimshaw just really top quality FTSE 100 board members that was one initiative and they did that pro bono and then the second area was these crown representatives we hired, where they actually went toe-to-toe with suppliers. They got on digital projects. So we hired the founder of FreeSurf, Rob Wilmer. Uh, we hired, off for construction, Ian Tyler, who was the former chairman of Balfour Beatty. Um, and again, you know, if you've got McAlpines coming in on a building contract and they're facing off against the former chairman of Balfour Beatty, wow, they take you seriously. So, uh, but also it means Ian can put himself, because we always want to have win-wins, and we want all suppliers in government to make money, fair margin, and we had a sort of margin card of what a fair margin on a construction project was, or an IT project, but if they're making super normal margin, that's not good, because it means they're, actually, we're kind of, we use bad words, probably like abuse of the taxpayer and the trust. Mm. Um, but bringing these guys in we had uh, about 40 of these crown representatives we had um, on the consultancy site a guy called Keith Burgess who was the founder of a company called Anderson Consulting which became Accenture uh, and he was the number two in that company worldwide so he came in on government's payroll but again so modest it was like these guys were being paid I don't know three or five hundred pound a day and they come in for two days a week, and they're all in their 50s and 60s, but they've got incredible experience. And what we, you know, we had this concept with the young fast-track civil servants. We're trying to create a, a teaching hospital. So we butted up like someone like Keith Burgess or Ian Tyler with some really smart well, Durham, Bath, Oxbridge fast-trackers, and they, they were in the teaching hospital, and they went through the formal train, and then actually you're going to be negotiating this afternoon with G4S... That's gonna be led by, in that case, Bill Carruthers. Off you go, start learning. Watch it, watch, watch and learn. Because the next one, Bill might not be there, he might be sick and you might have to do it yourself. Mm. So this the speed of learning of these amazing like 24, 25, 27 year olds was tremendous. And for them, wow, what a privilege to sit in a room with chairman of BP or whatever, um, and learn from them at the same time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, one more, and then we'll probably have to wrap it else.
1: From um, the people who were on the sorry, on the ground floor, as it were, who had been
2: operating all of these um, processes in the first place, how did they react? I mean, you must have had, you must have needed their buy-in because otherwise mm. you would have just had stagnation. So, how did you manage to convince them?
1: Um, probably, the truth is always with these sort of programs. There is a rule of thumb: saying so a third, a third, a third. A third of the people, and probably for us, it was about half the people, said, thank God, someone with a bit of common sense has come in and done what we've been screaming about for years, and no-one's listened. So, And they were easy, they were fantastic, they became evangelists, but they've been, they've been frustrated in the past, and now they're evangelists. Then there's probably about a third of the people who are deeply cynical... Uh, but when you start delivering results, they actually become your biggest fans because they say, no, I didn't believe this. I thought it was all kind of BS, these private... And there's been a history of great private sector people just sort of crashing and burning. So the burden of proof in terms of delivery was very high. And then there's, in our case, there was probably about 20% of the people who just weren't prepared to change and didn't have the skills. And many of those people are now no longer the civil service. civil service has gone from 492,000 to when I left, 370,000. But we're delivering massively improved outcomes. So, um, but, you know, many of the folks who kind of worked, probably 50% loved it, got it. 30% were there to be persuaded, and, and that's through proof of delivery and just, you know, seeing results. And then 20%, they were never going to get it.
0: Can I ask you... sort of didn't want to get it. That sort make,
1: of make a flip question of that, yeah. which is, um,
0: I mean, one of the ways in which companies that um, supply public services have over the last sort of 20 or so years, you know, grown and got lots of business, um, and you talked about SMEs and others, one of the ways that they, in which they've done it is to employ lots of lobbyists, yeah. is to uh, spend a lot of money in the relationship they have with civil servants and yeah. with ministers in order to basically secure the contracts. And what did, what did you do about that? How did you deal
1: with the kind of nexus between some of these big public sector suppliers? And that, that was quite difficult because, um, you know, coming up to Wimbledon, I, I was aware when I joined that people were going to men's final, women's final with, you know, Accenture and IBM. And I, actually, I just think that is very unsavoury. Because uh, at the end of the day, they're not spending a £1,000 a ticket and your partner, or £2,000 a ticket then. Where does that money come from? At the end of the day, we're paying for it. Mm. So, um, I banned hospitality, introduced a hospitality register. I said, for me, I will take no hospitality. And I made it... um, Symbolically, I did a few things. And this appeared in private eye, actually, um, which I didn't plan. It was an unintended consequence. Um, But one thing I did, I I spoke at this big industry of uh, the good and the great in IT lunch and i said i'm really happy to come along and you know it was, it was just like a flashback to the 1980s with executive dining rooms uh, it was in i think the rac club really lunch lavish wines so i came in with my bottle of water and my prep lunch i bought down the road and, and they you know i said i don't need any lunch and it made a massive signal i'm not even going to eat your food at lunch just be really, we've got to be serious and grown up about this. The the golden days of the gravy train are over. They're finished. Um, And all those guys you saw in the PAC, Bill Crothers, we've refused tons of hospitality, and we we said, look, if if you offer us hospitality again, you'll be going on a blacklist, effectively. Now, we can't implement, candidly, you can't implement a blacklist because it's against all the EU, but it sent the message. And I just think it's, I just felt it was totally unethical, a public servant taking hospitality from a supplier Um, and some of these were just a flashback to the past and and it just makes a very unhealthy relationship because you know it it contaminates your brain if you've been at Wimbledon and you've enjoyed and drinking and stuff you know invariably we love relationships Mm. but they've got to be very clear where the line is Mm. so we stopped that and that around that sort of situation it appeared a couple of times in private eye because they picked up on it. And, um, and then there was one on the PSL. I went to a number of PSCs. Um, one of them was around hospitality and civil servants, And that's when I said, we've just got to change it. And we've just got to have the, the highest level of ethics. Because, you know, it's just, just, honestly, it's stupidity otherwise. Because someone somewhere is going to sign a contract that goes wrong. And you're at the FA Cup final with a supplier. just mm. doesn't look good.